Good morning. It's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Welcome in. we got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Uh, where to start? I think I want to start with the passing of uh, Bill Marcroft. Uh, for some of you, he's, he's just a name. You don't really know that much about him. Maybe you've heard of him. You don't know much about him. Uh, for some of you, uh, you grew up and he, he was the voice of sports. <laughs> and then, then there's everything in between, right? And to say he's the voice of sports, you know, a lot of people refer to him as the voice of the Utes. But you have to go back to when he started his career. And he started calling Utah games in the mid-60s as an analyst for Bill Howard, um, 1966. And Bill left and took the Green Bay Packers job in 1969 when that really meant something. Unfortunately for Bill, the Packers were about to go south, and it didn't work out great for him. And he ended up coming back to Salt Lake City. Um, Marcroft took over in 1969, and he becomes the voice of the Utes, uh, and he um, is on TV already at Channel 2. He'd been on TV for years at that point. And he stayed on TV uh, as an anchor and reporter uh, into the 90s. He wasn't anchoring. He he stopped anchoring. Actually, that's when Dave Fox got hired in 87. But he continued to report for... uh, Another, what, seven or eight years, somewhere in there. And then in the mid-90s, uh, left TV altogether and kept doing radio until the Fiesta Bowl. Urban Meyer's uh, undefeated 2004 team actually played Dece- uh, January 1st of 2005 and beat Pitt in the Fiesta Bowl. And uh, along the way, touched a lot of lives, um, impacted a lot of people, um, saw a lot of games, told a lot of stories, uh, it's just unbelievable. But when I say he was the voice of sports, you have to go back to that time. You know, it's uh, he's on TV in the 60s and then the voice of the Utes in 1969. Okay, that's an era when there is no sports talk radio, obviously no internet, no social media. There are so few sports voices. You know, a beat writer for each team, a columnist, um, you know, uh, three TV stations, not four. Um, it, it was just so limited. And... So here he is on the radio calling games, and there's no sports talk radio, so the game's red. And then he's on TV. <clears throat> and the games aren't on TV. Uh, and there's no jazz at this point. Uh, there's not even the, the ABA uh, isn't even here yet in 1969, I don't think. I think they came in 71, I think. Um, 70, 71, right in there. So in any case, it's just very few teams, very few sports voices, and he's the guy. And he's the guy for decades. And along the way, as I found out doing Zoom interviews after I woke up Sunday morning to the news, he had suddenly passed away. He'd been posting on Facebook Saturday night. Uh, nobody I knew saw it coming. Every, everybody I spoke to was surprised. Um, yes, he was uh, <clears throat> in his late 80s, but unless he was 90, I guess. I, I think he was 89. Seems to be the best guess for most people. Um, but if you met him, you would have thought, oh, th- this guy's in his early 70s. You know, ton of energy, ton of energy, booming voice, stories to tell, always passionate, always fired up to see you, always good to see him, always good to see him. Um, and so as I'm speaking to all these people yesterday, you know, his impact beyond the games. And he actually did a story with Reese Stein um, and I aired a couple bites from it uh, in the in the piece last night, um, his obituary, basically. Uh, and he said, everyone asks you, what's your favorite game? So he says, it's not the games, it's the people. And then you find out how many people he impacted. You know, how many people he helped follow in his footsteps. He had a great career. He loved it. And he wanted to help other people get into it. And 
Uh, I spoke to Reese Stein, who was away in California, and it was a family deal, and uh, there was a wedding, and he'd been at a dinner, and he's in Sonoma, living living the good life as a retired guy. And he, um, but he made time, absolutely, he made time, and I asked him, "What's the first thing you think of when I say Bill Marcroft?" And he said, "Well, uh, career day, junior high." I thought I might want to be a sportscaster, and uh, then I heard Bill speak, and I knew I did. And a decade later, I was working with him on the Utah Coaches Show, and they did that together for 25 years and ended up doing a bunch of other stuff at Channel 2 together. Um, And it wasn't just Reese that he got into the business. You know, that's the 60s. Flash forward to the 80s, and Rod Zundel's uh, a former Bear River Bear quarterback. And his head coach had gone to the U to be an assistant to uh, Jim Fossil. And Rod was talking to his former coach, said, I think I want to get into uh, sports casting. And, uh, and his coach said, uh, I'm going to hook you up with Bill Marcroft. So got him a number and had him call and uh, said, hey, what, what do I need to do? And he said, you need to intern. You need, what do I do? He said, you need to get your butt down here right now. Let's go. And so Rod interned at uh, Channel 2 for Bill Marcroft. Uh, later on, got hired as a producer, uh, did some reporting, got air, on air as a fill-in anchor. Um, they hired me. That made Rod mad, but we got over it. Now we're good friends. <laughs> and uh, so a couple of years after I got here, uh, he jumped to KSL and ended up having a great career and a great run there. It's uh, not quite 25 years, I think, but uh, outstanding. And Rod, Rod teared up while I was talking to him. Uh, teared up. We ran it. You know, he said tears were shed this morning when he heard the news. Um, and then Frank Dolce, another guy. <laughs> you know, Reese in the 60s, Rod in the 80s, and Frank Dolce, who you hear on our show, Trace it, trace it back to Bill Marcroft. Uh, Frank was a JC a quarterback down in California, in Southern California, and came up to play uh, two years at the U. And so he started for a couple of years just as Ron McBride was getting it going, um, you know, transitioning from a losing program to a winning program. And, and Frank was a part of that. Um, and Frank was actually the starting quarterback when I moved here. And uh, so Frank in California had been called Frank Dolce. And Frank's of Italian heritage. And his grandmother and parents came to visit here in Utah. His grandmother grew up in New York and spoke Italian in her house. And Frank didn't go into it, but I think we can assume, we can talk to him when we have him on the air again, that um, either her parents or grandparents, Frank's great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents, came over from Italy and spoke Italian. And so she spoke Italian in the house as a kid. And Bill got talking to her because Bill got talking to everybody and uh, found out that the family name was pronounced Dolce. And so instead of calling him Dolce, he immediately changed to Dolce. And Frank laughed. He says, yeah, when I'm in Utah, people say, hey, Frank Dolce. He says, I go back to California to see high school buddies. And Frank Dolce. Uh, and that was going back to, you know, 1969 and the era. You know, there were f- so few sports voices. Bill had such a platform. And he used it to help a lot of people. And it was a powerful platform. He could literally change a guy's name. <laughs> Just literally do it. So, uh Bill, absolutely missed. When I got here, he was right at the end of his uh, Channel 2 run, but we did overlap for a couple years, and he's great to me. Told me a lot about uh, the history of Utah sports, got me up to speed. It's hard to be the fish out of water when everybody else has lived their whole life here and knows all the storylines, and you don't know anything. (laughs) Well, I didn't know anything, but I didn't know a lot. I'd followed BYU football because San Diego State was in the same conference, but he could take me back to BYU football in, in the 60s and seven, 60s and early 70s, and I couldn't do that. And the Utes and uh, the early days of the Jazz here, it, w- it was great. And uh, 
So Bill will be missed. Huge loss, and a lot of people had a lot of good things to say about him. We ran him on Talking Sports last night. I'm going to be putting some of them out on social media, too, if you missed him. Uh, the rest of the sports from this weekend, uh, college football, USC does it again. That was a weird game. Weird game, electric finish, uh, Slovis is spectacular. There's all kinds of speculation about is something wrong with his hand, his arm, or his elbow, or his shoulder. You know, the ball's fluttering. Oh, it was windy. No, it wasn't. Well, all I know is the guy's pretty mediocre for three and a half quarters, and then he'll get you two late touchdowns and win the game. That's what happened in these first two games, first at Arizona State, or at home against Arizona State, and then at Arizona. And then... uh, Oregon State, I think, got robbed against Washington. Horrible spot. They're down there in the red zone ready to score. And maybe they wouldn't have, or maybe Washington would have come back and scored. But, man, spot the ball. Spot the ball. It was unanimous. Twitter broke. <laughs> People just broke Twitter complaining about the refs when that happened. People who you know, aren't Oregon State fans are just watching the game. Anyway, uh, as far as the NFL, Devontae Booker, the former Ute, had a couple touchdowns for the Raiders as they blew out Denver. Uh, that was notable. So those guys really ran the ball well. That was spectacular. Um, the Cardinals winning on the Hail Mary. That's the play of the day. That was incredible. And now the Cardinals and the Rams and the Seahawks are all 6-3. and three. The Seahawks' defense is bad. Their pass defense is the worst in the NFL. They gave up another 300-yard game. This one to Jared Goff. Most of the touchdowns were on the ground, but Goff threw the ball up and down the field. Not good. Not good, Seattle. Um, Russell Wilson struggled. They didn't score, but they haven't had a running game. They're supposed to get Carson back next week, and that, will, that should make a difference. He was running the ball really well early in the season, hurt his foot. He's been out now, I don't know, four games, something like that. He came back, played briefly, and went out again. But basically, he's been gone for more than a month now, and he's supposed to play next week, so that should help the Seahawks control the ball, take all the pressure off Wilson. He shouldn't have to do everything. Maybe control the ball a little bit and keep the defense off the field a little bit. That might help, too. Also, New Orleans, uh, we were wondering, is Taysom Hill the backup quarterback? Um, uh, No, is the answer. (laughs) Because Drew Brees got hurt. He got rocked in the second quarter. And he stayed in, he played a little more, and they scored, uh, but he clearly wasn't himself. And, you know, if he's got a rib injury, I think no one's surprised. And maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a shoulder. I don't know. But he didn't look right, that's for sure. And eventually came out of the game. Jameis Winston came in. It was like 6-10 for 63 yards. Taysom uh, ran the ball, was productive there, um, got sacked. Um, So that was it for him. Uh, He didn't, didn't actually attempt to pass, but he did get sacked the one time. So it's a little bit of the NFL. We'll get to more of that coming up. Uh, but coming up, we got to get to the Utah State story. Uh, and then later in this, this hour, we got to get to the, the Jazz because the draft is Wednesday and then f- turn around and just boom, right into free agency. So it's a big week for the NBA. Uh, we'll talk with David Locke coming up. Uh, but next, the Aggies and what has gone spectacularly wrong at Utah State. I mean, this is beyond the 0-4, even beyond the, the blowouts, the, the lack of leadership, literally. We'll get into that next. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Good morning, it's DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280, The Zone. Well, one of the many questions of the morning... What is wrong at Utah State? Good grief. 
Good grief isn't really what most Aggie fans want to say right now, but we're on the radio, so that's all we're going to say. But we know there's much more that could be said than that. It's not just that they're 0-4, although that is, you know, I mean, they were 11-2 two years ago. How do you get this bad this quickly? Um, you have to say a lack of leadership. Literally. I mean, how many teams 0-4, and the coach is gone, Gary Anderson's out, and the quarterback's gone now. A release coming out last night about 6 o'clock or so that Jason Shelley, the transfer quarterback from Utah, is off the team. I mean, literally, the coach and the starting quarterback from the season opener, you get to game four, they're both gone. How often can you say that? I'm thinking not very. Now, you could go to the backup quarterback, but the other guy uh, left before the season started, partly because he saw Shelley, or mostly because he saw Shelley coming in, didn't think he had a chance to be the starting quarterback, so he goes to Texas Tech. Now you've another kid who apparently has tested positive for COVID, so now you're down to freshman quarterbacks. You're going to be running freshmen out there against Wyoming. And as you're about to hear from Frank Mila, he got into it, the interim coach, that the two guys are supposed to be calling plays offensively and defensively. They tested positive for COVID and weren't at the game. I mean, if you don't have your head coach and you don't have your play callers and now your quarterback is transferred, I mean, what else can go wrong? I know I shouldn't say that out loud, right? Because something can go wrong. But they go into this game getting outscored 38-10 to 10 on average over three games. Not even remotely competitive. Just getting drilled week after week. Boise State, San Diego State, Nevada. So here comes Fresno State. They actually led after a quarter, so that was a step forward. They lose 35-19, uh, 35-16. It's a 19-point loss. That's the closest loss of the year. It's, it's a total nightmare. They got four games to go. Will they be favored in any of them? Maybe New Mexico on Thanksgiving. Maybe. Maybe they could win that game. Uh, probably the next most winnable game would be Air Force. Air Force, I don't, I don't think Troy Calhoun really wants to play this year. I've heard that from multiple people, and it makes sense because he had like 40 guys opt out, so he's not going to win a lot. But then he blows out Navy, which made no sense whatsoever. Uh, but then they have missed a couple of games, and they have gotten blown out. So... Uh, maybe Air Force if that game goes off. We'll have to see how that goes. And other than that, they got Wyoming and CSU. And they are huge underdogs. They are 19-point underdogs against Wyoming this week. Uh, just just miserable at Utah State. Miserable. Now, I know they've, they've fallen very far. They've fallen very far very quickly. Um, you want to be positive and think, hey, they could bounce back that quickly. But, you know, we'll just have to see who the coach is. And see how they're going to do this. You know, in an era of transfers, I think you can get more talent more quickly. You know, guys want to play, and if they know there's a chance to come in, uh, they they might be up for it. And I, and also, it'll be interesting to see. Um, you know, I think there were clearly um, chemistry issues, or um, you know, effort, spirit. Uh, you know, any of those words we hear bounced around all the time. Um, you know, there's just there was a new energy with Frank running the show and with Gary gone, and there may be also with the quarterback change. We'll have to see how that goes out, but I, I just don't think they're good enough to beat Wyoming. I think Wyoming is at least a middle of the pack Mountain West team, and they might be better than that, um, but they they're at least that good. I, I think Nevada's a little better than the middle of the pack. I think that's becoming clear, and Nevada needed overtime to beat Wyoming. You know, there was not a big gap there. Romeo Dubs, that star Nevada receiver who, you know, we might be picking on our fantasy football teams pretty quickly um, and see if he takes off for the uh, NFL and 
what kind of impact he can have. But he's clearly better in the Mountain West. You know, we can all try to project how good he will or won't be in the pros, and we'll have to see how that plays out. But my goodness, he is much better than everybody in the Mountain West. And usually, if you're that much better than everybody in the Mountain West, you're going to get a shot in the NFL usually. So, But he's got eight touchdowns in four games, and he caught the game winner in overtime against Wyoming, and he's lighting people up for three touchdowns a game now. It's, it's amazing how good he is. But what's wrong at Utah State? Well... After the game, uh, the punter of all people is shedding some light on things. Uh, Stephen Kotzenly, here he is after the loss to Fresno. Stephen, how are you? All right, how are you guys doing? Doing well. Uh, let's talk about uh, you've had some opportunities. This offense has struggled a little bit. Talk about your adjustment and what this has been like for you uh, playing uh, Division One college football. Yeah, well, it's actually been very interesting about in a good way. Uh, obviously, in Australia, we learn to play uh, Aussie rules where essentially you just, from a young age, you learn how to kick the ball. So it's essentially adjusting to <laughs> kicking the ball, you know, a certain distance, certain hang time, and a certain spot. So it's been pretty good. And you've been able to do that the last couple of weeks, getting uh, three punts down inside the, the 20 and, and two even inside the five again here tonight. What's your, what is your strategy? What is your technique to be able to get that ball to bounce like you would like? I really wish I had an answer for you in that one. But, um, no, it's essentially my mindset out there is do my job you know, as best as I can. So sometimes, you know, the elements are against you, but it's essentially just go out there and do it um, and just kick the ball, essentially. There's no real way to it. It's just go out there and kick the ball. So there's no different technique that you use to try to pin a ball inside the five-yard line or get it to, get it to stop? There's plenty of uh, sort of, I guess, clubs. In my bag, I guess you could say. <laughs> but um, I've developed a few, uh, as you see, the Australian punt, which is, uh, I guess you guys know, as a rugby where the ball spins backwards um, from your boot. And one that I've sort of brought in the game that was made famous by Johnny Hecker a couple of weeks ago, the watermelon punt, but I call it the banana, which is sort of you hit it on the inside and you get the ball to curve outwards. So that's probably the main main punt I use in that sort of pin aspect because I can always rely on the bounce either bounce up or bounce outside into the boundary. Because I, I don't know if you're a golfer or not, but you look like you had a pitching wedge and getting that thing to drop right on the green and stop. <laughs> That's the, uh, not the first time I've heard that. I love golf. I'm not very good at it personally. But yeah, I guess that's the analogy people like to use. You know, from Sam Cook at the Ravens, yeah, just got clubs in your bag. And that's really, I think, is what separates punters these days. So, so two questions for you, Stephen. Uh, talk a little bit about the big 63-yarder that you, you got down the sideline with the big roll. Talk about that one first, but then tell us a little bit about you and, and your journey. Where did you come from, and, and how did you get to Utah State? Of course. Well, in that situation, um, I needed to redeem myself after a few poor points on my behalf. However, it was just essentially put the field and help the team out. That's my mindset every single time. So it was either worrying, but I didn't really worry about the rush. It was just grab the ball and kick the ball in the right spot in the right direction. And uh, a nice little kick on roll with that one. So I was pretty happy pretty happy with that nice little roll. And then tell us a little bit about your journey to Logan and where you come from and how you got here. I, so obviously I came from Melbourne, Australia, and I went through a program about two years ago called Pro Kick Australia, run by uh, Nathan Chapman and John Smith down over in um, Melbourne. And they essentially teach ex-Australian rules players to learn how to punt the football because everyone has that kicking ability. It's just a matter of mastering it and then performing it at a college level. But from there, 
um, I, I guess I got some tape, which got some interest from Utah State here. And <laughs> September of last year, I'm on a plane over with my little brother for a visit, uh, it, which was absolutely amazing. And then I committed after that. So it's actually been, you know, looking back, it's been really quick to be here and to play, but it's an absolute blessing that um, Utah State has given me the opportunity to be here today. Um, I, I got to imagine uh, when you look out and you, you punt in conditions like that, it's a little bit different probably than what you were used to in Melbourne. Definitely. I mean, we have rainy days, but we definitely don't have any uh, snowy days. So the mindset is just to not let it phase you. Just go for it. You, know, you can't let it get into your head. So, Stephen, obviously not the success that this team has, has wanted to have. What What is the mindset of this team as you go into the locker room? And what did, uh, what did your new interim head coach, uh, Frank Miley, say to you guys as you came into the locker room? Just keep going. You know, don't quit. Just keep going. You know, times like this, it's, you know, it can be tough. And a lot, a lot of guys can have their heads down. But it's just a matter of switching that around and keep moving forward. Because it's that adversity that really tests teams. You know, you can either let it completely consume you or we can rise up as a unit. And we had, we definitely showed that. We had glimpses of that. And now it's just a matter of putting it for three, four quarters and uh, having a day out. Well, Stephen, we appreciate your time, man. It's good getting to know you a little bit more. And uh, uh, keep it rolling, man. Look forward to catching up with you again here soon. It's, uh, it's an absolute pleasure. I hope you guys and the uh, listeners can understand me. All right, there's punter Stephen Cottsonley. Now here's the... Interim head coach, Frank Miley. Coach, uh, I thought your defense, outside of that one touchdown, I thought your defense played really well in the the second half. What did you see out of those guys to try to get some stops to at least try to give your offense an opportunity? You know what I mean? The the message never changes with me. You know, we just got to be a little bit better every single time we step on the football field. And I told them no, no one should have any energy when we walk off. Needed to empty the tank, and you know that's what they did. And we gave up one explosive play, and unfortunately, that's that's the play that hit. And so, uh, man, I, I I love our guys, man. They're tough. They play hard. Uh, but again, like I like I preach to them all week long. Effort's never been a problem for us, man. Execution, uh, and, and it hit again today. Coach, I thought uh, you know the way that you guys came out, uh, the energy and the enthusiasm was was really palpable, and I thought that uh, you know perhaps one of the biggest plays in this ball game was when you're up 13 to seven and Jalen Warren rips off a big long run and it gets poked out for the fumble that they turned back and then went on a big long drive in just a few short plays and they took the lead that they they never really relinquished. Did you see it that same way? Yeah, man, and we knew especially because of the weather, man. You know, offensively, man, the, the, the game, they were able to do uh, in this weather game. And so um weren't able to do that. Unfortunately, the two fumbles we, we had were in crucial situations that could have flipped the game uh, in a different direction. And so, again, that, that'll that never change, man. That's a, that's a big part of who we are is protect the football and take away on defense. And so we got to coach these guys better. We got to do a better job of emphasizing that. Um, and everybody's got to be a little bit better. It did seem, though, your running game was was going well. Is there some positives you can take away from that uh, for the rest Absolutely. of the season? A- a- absolutely. And it's really confidence that they can do it. You know what I mean? And so uh, I think uh, Coach Schramm's game plan this week allowed them to, you know, probably simplify things um, to get them going. And they knew exactly what they were supposed to do. And the O-line did a great job of staying on their blocks and creating wash up front and uh, – 
man, that's what, that's what created those those big runs, man. So they started strong, and again, we got to play that way all four quarters. I know you've, uh, you know, obviously a tough situation coming into this, Coach, uh, after Coach Anderson was was relieved of his duties last week. Um, is there anything from your perspective as you look at trying to get more productive offensively and more consistently consistent offensively? Uh, what, from your perspective, can be done on that side of the football to help that team, to help your team be more successful? I think it's just collectively everyone's got to be better. Everyone's got to be better, you know, and that's the same on defense and special teams. And, uh, you know, I, in, in my eyes, there were too many errors defensively. We gave, we gave up too many big plays that, that they didn't really deserve. We kind of handed it over to them. And on offense, man, I, I think we took a huge step forward in the right direction, even though the score doesn't show that. I think uh, the way we, we were able to establish the football, running it on the ground, uh, and creating some explosive plays, man, I think is something to build on for us and continue to move in that direction and just continue to ask these kids to give a little bit more. You uh, you have a short week, and it will lead to three consecutive Thursday night games. Uh, do you have any concern about your ability to make sure the preparation is where it needs to be going into uh, Wyoming on a short week? No, I, I think the coaches understand it's got to be simple. It's got to be simplified, right? Some of the stuff we've, we've done, probably the positive stuff we've done today, we carry that into next week uh, and continue to build on that, and that should be the foundation moving on to next week. So, for us, uh, you know, as hard as it was, man, these guys got to have short, short-term memory loss, and uh, come tomorrow, we're we're in Wyoming. So, coach, I, I'm curious. As we mentioned, uh, the enthusiasm I thought out of the out of the gate was was terrific. How was the mood at the end of the game? Was there some frustration? Was there are, are the guys still together? I'll tell you what, man. I, I got to give I got to give my hat off to uh, to our leaders, man, because you 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 would think there would be a lot of chaos and sadness and, and you know guys working in different direction, man. But the leaders in our in our building, man, Shaq Bond, Justice Tei, Dimitri Ali, Ford, those guys stepped up after the game. You know what I mean? And so they called it what it was. Uh, they called out everybody, uh, trying to hold everybody accountable. That that wasn't good enough. That's not Aggie football. That's not the Aggie way. And everybody's got to do a little bit better this week moving forward. And so, uh, man, those, those guys handled themselves uh, like pros, to tell you the truth, man, after the game in the in the locker room. And so I spoke, and they actually spoke. They did a lot of the talking afterwards. And so, man, I, I got to continue my hat to these guys, the leaders in, in this building, and a great job handling that. Got to uh, got to feel good. You got off the uh, turnover schneid. You got a couple tonight, and both of them, I believe, inside the twenty yard line too. No doubt, no doubt. Backs against the wall, man. And I told these guys, it's, it's like there's an intruder in the house. That's the that's the mentality they got to have, and they continue to fight away. And you know, luck follows effort, man. And so uh, that's that's what happened. These guys continue to, to continue to fight, and so we got to continue to build on that. That's a little bit better. Uh, of protecting our backs of getting into that situation in the first place, but. Man, I told them, man, I'm, I'm proud to be, you know, their head coach for the time being and, and leading him in the battle because these guys are fighters. I thought, uh, again, tonight, just like last week, I mean, you get the kick six from Savon, you get the punts down inside the five. I thought the special teams was pretty good again here tonight. Yeah, man, those guys, we, we you know, they do a great job coaching special teams, Coach Rock. Uh, Coach Burmeister do a great job in special teams, and our kids take pride in special teams. So, so moving forward, man, special teams will always play a huge role in in us establishing a position and, and creating explosive plays. Especially since we have explosive players, 
with Savon and uh, DT and those guys, man. So we we got to take advantage of that weekly. Again, there's, there's we're just a few blocks away of, of creating more explosive. Uh, we continue to move forward next week. Coach, we appreciate your time. Uh, look forward to chatting with you and Laramie. Likewise. Appreciate it, fellas. There's the interim coach, Frank Miley, talking Aggie football. And uh, my goodness, this has just gone so wrong, so quickly, so spectacularly. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens Thursday night when they go to Wyoming. Uh, I'll be watching. It's, uh, you know, you can't look away at this point, right? Winning teams are more useful than losing teams. But I got to say, when you lose this spectacularly, you do become a little bit of story for a while. You know, I mean, the Gary Croton area for three years of losing, that was a pretty good, that was a pretty good story. You got people fired up for a while. Doesn't last, though. People want you to turn around and win. So we'll see what happens with the coaching search. It needs to happen quickly because what are we, uh, early signing day? You got early signing days in December. I mean, it's right around the corner. We're already at November 16th. It's coming up. Uh, Mountain West teams probably not as active as Pac-12 teams, but it's still critical. But some Mountain West teams do sit back to see who doesn't sign so they can make a bigger splash in February. So that buy a new coach a little more time. Still, they got to hire a staff and all that stuff and get going. All right, we got to get going. we got to take a break. When we come back, uh, the NBA draft's coming up Wednesday. Then right after that, it's into free agency. David Locke talking about that with PK and I next. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. David Locke's weekly interview is brought to you by the Murdoch Auto Team. Time to welcome in David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz. David, good morning. Good morning, DJ. Good morning, PK. David, we talk to you uh, once a week, and I am curious, over the course of the next week, how much is the league going to change with the draft, free agency right on top of the draft, and obviously the chance for trades, uh, you know, will we hear about sign-in trades by the next time we talk to you? Certainly, we could hear about draft day trades. What is it? What do you think the biggest change in the NBA is going to be when we talk to you a week from now? Oh, I think marquee names will have moved. So, um, I don't think there'll be free agent movement. I, I mean, Fred Van Vliet's like the one free agent that might move, and I'm not sure that that. I mean, it definitely has an impact because he's really good and Toronto's really good, but. That's probably the biggest name, but I don't actually know. I mean, I guess Phoenix could pay him, and maybe Atlanta would pay him. Um, so I don't think there'll be free agent movement. Anthony Davis will resign. Brandon Ingram will resign. But I think Miles Turner will move out of Indiana, either to New Orleans, um, where he's really a perfect fit for Drew Holiday, or to Boston for Gordon Hayward, where he's actually a pretty perfect fit. So I think that's a possibility. Um, I think Russell Westbrook will move. Uh, I think Chris Paul will move. Um, what else? I mean, I just think there'll be a lot of the draft pick. Draft trades, um, I think, will be prevalent but not earth-shattering. In other words, everyone is looking to move down, not up. And there, 
so I don't, and there don't seem to be a lot of players who someone, anyone really feels like, oh, that's a game changer for us to go get him. And so I think it's going to be hard for any of the top kind of four or five teams that are interested in moving their pick to be able to get down. And, and then, you know, usually if you're trading one through four, a player of significance is moving, and I don't see that happening. So um, I think you'll see trades. I think that we, these the general managers have all had enough time over the last seven months to kind of figure out possibilities and really look through the league and everything's been investigated and things have probably been talked about. Um, and so I think you'll see a lot of trades once the trade window opens, which is a little different, but I don't think you'll see um, huge draft day earthquake type things. And I mean, maybe, you know, maybe for all we know, Drew Holiday and Miles for Miles Turner, and someone decides they deserve a draft pick out of that. Like that's the kind of where a draft pick could be involved, but I don't think otherwise. The one thing I do think's worth keeping an eye on that could have an impact is when. So Mike Conley just opted in, according to reports. When is the opt-in date? Is it? It usually is after the draft. There's some talk that maybe before the draft this year. So then someone like even Ennis Cantor at five million or Gordon Hayward at his thirty opt in, they're now tradable. They wouldn't have been tradable otherwise. So that could only that'll increase trade. Why do you think the draft isn't actually more of a science than it is? Oh, Three things, youth, four things, maybe more. We might keep going. This list might keep going, PK. Um, All right, so youth, and then I think uh, money, like how different kids react to getting the money. Like I think certain kids, you know, it changes them. Other kids are unimpacted by it, and they're just trying to get better. Um, The I'm going to say this politely. Um, The large discrepancy between the collegiate game and the NBA game. So I'll use an example in this draft. Cole Anthony. AAU circuit, elite-level athlete, pretty fabulous one-on-one player, thought of really highly, at times thought of as one of the best high school players in the country. Goes to North Carolina. Roy Williams runs, I don't know what. I mean, I know what it is, but it's just the most antiquated double-post bullcrap I've ever seen. There's no room anywhere I don't think there was a guy on that team that shot better than 33% from three. And Cole Anthony looks like hell. Well, which is it? Like, you know, does he look terrible because he started playing better players and he's not in the more structure and he's not as good? Or is it because, like, there's no room? Like, I've been watching Cole Anthony and I just freeze frame the screen and then just decide the play is useless. Like, I literally look at it, freeze frame the screen, I'm like, okay, whatever happens here actually does not give me any understanding of anything about it. I mean, I guess if he had scored in that, then he's Michael Jordan. Because there's just no room on that floor at all. Villanova is like one of the only teams that actually opens the floor, spreads it out, runs multiple pick and rolls with multiple different players. And so you have a player like Sadiq Bey who looks great because his system's fabulous. They've spread the floor all five of their guys can shoot a little and he has all this room to maneuver. I actually worry on him. He doesn't pop off the screen to me as an athlete at all. He doesn't, he he's bigger than anyone guarding him. Cause he's playing with the ball in his hands at six, seven, two twenty. He doesn't turn the corner and get his shoulder by anyone. 
um, and he doesn't elevate over a lot of people. Like I'm worried a little bit on him that he gets into the NBA and suddenly is athletically deficient and then doesn't look as good. Whereas Cole Anthony might actually get into the NBA and be really good with a spread open floor. Like I think he might be Austin Rivers. Like that's pretty good. But there's a chance that Sadiq Bay like actually can't beat people. So, you know, here's a player who looks amazing in college and another one who looks terrible in college. And I actually think there's a chance that they flip when they get to the NBA because the collegiate game is just so different. And then the th- fourth one, I would say, though I is I, every you know organization is different in how they develop talent. Um, and there are seemingly some spots in this league where you get caught in that system and there's just not a lot of talent development going on or you end up with three coaches in five years and maybe you're a better player than what you're being able to show. And then there's other guys who just end up in, the, you know, in a perfect circumstance and they might, you know, and then if they look good early, they get traded to a different circumstance and they don't look as good. So, so I would say youth, so lack of experience, money, the collegiate game just does not replicate the NBA game in any way, shape, or form, and then system that they get dropped into. How's that for off the top of my head? Uh, that is very David Locke-esque. Okay. Just <laughs> warming up. Let me have another shot of espresso. I'll be ready. So Mike Conley has decided that he will not opt out. Now, he would have only opted out if he was going to sign a two- or three-year deal with the Jazz. Does that surprise you? What do you think the logic is from either side of the bargaining table on uh, how that played out? Doesn't surprise me at all. Um, You know, so Mike's decision of two things is one, you know, does he want to go? Does he hate Utah so much he's willing to bypass thirty million? Okay, so that was no. Um, does he have an opportunity to make more money over the next three years by opting out than he does by opting in? So, in other words, could have he, you know, garnered fifty million over three years? Where if he goes in the open market next year, he's only going to get a two-year, eight million dollar deal or something? You know, um, I. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know that that was actually on the table for him, so that might not have been an option. And the other part of that is I just, you know, he's made enough money that if I were Mike Conley after this year, I would just want to pick, be able to pick my spot, right? Like I might be able to go play some, I might be willing to go play somewhere for a million if it's the right spot, right? Like, so, you know, the Lakers are looking for a point guard and I go spend a year in LA and, and, you know, go try to win a title with LeBron or I decide that I, you know, my family is growing and kids are beginning to go to school and I want to be in a place where we're comfortable. Like it could be anything. So um, I just think if you've made as much money as Mike Conley, maybe you're at this point in your career, I'll take another year in Utah and then just evaluate the landscape and see what's best for me in a year. And if it's the difference between, you know, making three, five and 10, as crazy as that sounds, it might not matter. So Justin Zanuck got a promotion, and I don't remember when it was, but it was sometime in the last year. How, with this new ownership and all, do you think decisions will be made come draft night? Hmm. You know, so J- Justin is GM. Dennis is, I think, vice, like president of basketball operations. I still get the... I mean, Dennis has always been incredibly collaborative. So that's always, if you talk to people in the room, he's always asking a lot of questions. He's always getting a lot of opinions. He's always looking for a consensus. 
um, of the group. He's, you know, I guess at some point in every moment, it's somebody's decision that has to be made. But that has not been from what I've heard. I've obviously never been in the room. Um, from everybody I've heard, that's not how Dennis does things. I've heard much more that Dennis is a collective uh, viewpoints, multitude of ideas coming to a collective decision. So it doesn't change much? Uh, that would be, yeah, that's the implication of okay. my answer. Yeah. Which... Like, I don't think I don't think Justin suddenly standing in the front of the room and saying we're doing this, but maybe. I mean, you know, there's... You know, they had some extra, they had some pretty fast pivots they had to make in free agency last year when Miritich decided that he was going to stay in Europe. So somebody in that room had to be making a pretty quick pivot of what the next move was. It, you know, um, now Dennis and his crew have also always been known for extensive preparation. So maybe that pivot is simply what's option two, and it's already lined up on the board. But if that's not the case, then somebody in that group had to make a pretty quick pivot in the decision at you know a major moment in time and to go get Boyan Bogdanovich. And so I don't know who that was, but if that if that in fact, I mean, one of those, one of two scenarios happened on that, right? So Miritich surprised everybody and went to Europe, and now that's off the list. What are we going to do? And we have, you know, that was really significant to the marketplace because it meant there was one less stretch four in a marketplace that didn't have a lot of stretch fours and had a lot of suitors. And so, you know, you were on the verge of not getting a stretch four and then probably re-signing faves and being back with kind of that that lineup that didn't. And then I, you know, you grabbed Conley. I mean, we'll, we'll never know whether a lineup of Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell, and Joe Ingles is enough shooting to let favors and go bear work. I mean, that could have been the other theory there. So that might've been an option, but I mean, they just had to make a really, sorry, I'm just kind of babbling off thoughts. They just had to make a really quick pivot. Somebody did it. Which team in the West of the jazz are chasing is about to make a major move. That's going to have everybody talking or which team below the jazz is about to make a move that leapfrogs them in front of the jazz and has everybody talking. Mm. Uh, so the Thunder are, I think, by definition, ahead of the Jazz in the standings last year, and I think they'll make a move that will make everyone think they're less good, and I'm not entirely sure that's true unless they lose Gallinari also. If they move Chris Paul and just turn it over to Shea Gilgis-Alexander, I guess they'll lose some games, but I think it's just the natural time to like Gilgis-Alexander of that team. Um, the Warriors will leapfrog the Jazz. They'll have some significant move here if it's just not nothing, if it's just not, you know, the least of which is just taking the number two pick of the draft. Um, but that's that's talent. I mean, this draft may not be great, but adding anyone from James Wiseman to Anthony Edwards to Tyrese Halliburton would make the war. You know, that that player was Alfonso McKinney two years ago, so they'll be way better. That's a that's a step in the right direction, um, and they're healthy, so the warrior or healthier, so the Warriors should leapfrog the Jazz. Um, I think Dallas could make a move um, that could could. You know, if Dallas can go get something next to Luca and Chris Tapps, I don't know exactly what it is. Like I, I'm kind of the last. I'm on Zach Levine Island. There aren't a lot of people left. It's got, the real estate value is dropping, and we've had a certain you know flight off our island. But I, I'm a pretty big fan of Zach Levine. I saw he was rumored to be in discussions with Dallas. Um, there's only like there's only like 18 guys, and like here's my thought on that. By the way. So the off-the-bounce three has become the big play, right? We saw that with Donovan and Jamal Murray and the 
if everyone's dropping the big, which 29 of the 30 teams do, and actually probably 30 of 30 because Jim Boylan doesn't have a job anymore, um, then the you know the answer to that is you have to come off the pick and roll and rise into a shot. Like that's that's the only way to combat that defense really successfully. There's only I think 19 players in the NBA who shoot 35 percent or better off off the bounce threes. And Zach Levine's one of them. So, and he's big and tall, and he can get his shot off. So, I'm a fan. Um, you know, I know all the problems, but I'm still a fan. So, I think that could be good for Dallas. Um, you know, if New Orleans goes and gets Miles Turner, that's an interesting move, right? They're really without a center right now for Zion, and Derek doesn't really match because they don't, both can't shoot. And so, if they're suddenly Lonzo Ball, JJ Redick. Jason Hart, um, Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson, Miles Turner, that and they have two rim defenders, that's that's kinda awesome. Um so yeah, I mean I think that I'm trying to think who else. So Phoenix, I guess, if they go add Chris Paul, do you like do you totally buy into that? I I don't really buy the Phoenix eight no bubble as a great indicator, but certainly they're getting better. How do you think? So, yeah, this... every, so and and everyone. So Minnesota's getting the number one pick. Yeah. So just everyone in the West is getting better. How will the pandemic affect the draft? Well, if it's like the NFL draft, the TV broadcast will be way better. Well, I don't mean like, it was optically. really cool to watch everyone in their house. I thought that was a way better broadcast. Um, um, I don't know how the pandemic will. I mean, these guys are like I talked to two, somebody in the front in a like you know league person the other day I was talking and I brought up like who's going to be unprepared and like you know or what what front office is you know I'm looking for like what front office is going to get exposed and he was like exposed like it's been nine months like everybody's prepared for this there's nobody who's not prepared for this they've had nine months so I don't think there's some concept that players you know haven't been seen John Hollinger on the Hollinger and Duncan podcast. It might have been actually on Chad Ford's big board. One of the two was talking about how he thinks like the best thing about this draft is the fact that there's no workouts or that there's limited workouts. He thinks that the recency bias on workouts in an unnatural environment lead teams to make bad decisions. Okay. So that's just a, there's a counter opinion on, you know, yeah, you're no. much better off evaluating players in games and what you're seeing on the floor than when you put them in an unnatural circumstance in the gym after they've been working with their trainer for two months to, uh, to be ready for those specific drills was his point. And so you, and then he thinks it's impossible to get in the draft room and not have the most recent observation be your dominant thought. Sure, but when you're watching them in games and they're running offenses that I ran when I was a kid, right. <laughs> back to your point about North Carolina and they're oh, not alone, I, I'd watch Nico Mannion to Arizona because I knew him when he was in elementary school and I think, I recognize that offense. Why are they running that? Right. And then I would text Pace and then I would get back some short terse reply and realize, oh, wait, I can't joke about this with him. Yeah, <laughs> well, what am I doing? Right. I mean, That's I think like, like Nico Mannion's interesting because he is pretty little and he didn't finish at the rim very well. And so, but he, he has some incredible court vision and plays with an incredible pace. And then Arizona state didn't do those two things. So it was really hard to tell what he could do. Like, you know, is he going to be able to get in the lane and really distribute and move it around and do some pretty fabulous things in an open floor of the NBA? Maybe he was, 
bogarted a bunch of times defensively in a way that was a little unnerving when I've watched him. Um, I mean, I think he might be DJ Augustine, um, which is good. DJ Augustine's got like a 12-year career going um, and was a seventh, ninth pick of a draft. And Pace, and Pace's kid, Nico, is going to be, you know, probably 40s. Um, but I'm with you on that. You know, like the kid that I just have like attached myself to and may never play in the NBA is this kid out of Mississippi State named Robert Woodard II. And he just jumps off the screen like if you're if i if you watch mississippi state you might not he might disappear for 15 minutes because he's you know not great but every now and then he'll do something and it's like oh that's the nba player on the floor and so what do you how do you evaluate this guy he plays on a team whose guards are selfish and awful i mean awful and never pass and he's a wing, and he's limited, but he's six eight, like two twenty. He had like the fifth biggest vertical jump. He has got a seven two reach. He is a one foot jumper, so that if he gets an edge on someone, it's over. And he is on top of the cup. He's actually got, I think, pretty good anticipatory defensive skills when he's paying attention defensively, which is not always. And he is God went into his athletic bag of tricks and gave all of them to him all of them, every single one of them to this guy. And yet he's playing, I watch him, and he'll disappear for like 10 minutes because he sees the ball for like a second. And the system has him always getting the ball. Never, He never touches the ball with an advantage. He gets the ball at 30 feet all the time straight away with no, like he can't dribble more than two or three times in a row right now with his skill set, so there's nothing he can do from there. And yet if they're in the open floor, like there was a play I watched where off a made free throw, they pushed it up and the defense wasn't entirely set. And he's so explosive that he was on top of the cup with this monster jam. Like that's an NBA player. And so how do you evaluate this guy? He looks like he's going to go in the second round. I kind of love him because you know what? Like maybe you can teach him how to dribble three times. Maybe you can teach him to make the shots a little better. Three seems fine. He's got a high relief, shoots 65% from the free throw line. So that makes you nervous. Cause that's the number one thing that equates to three point shooting. But you know what? Like he can guard the two, the three, the four. If he put, if he focuses, he like actually I think could be a secondary rim defender because he's such an elite athlete, and I think that's like the biggest thing in the league right now. And yet, you know what? If you watch him, he looks like yeah, I got why he's a second round draft pick and why people don't really like him because it's pretty mundane to watch him sit in the sit on the wing and kind of get the ball, and then every now and then get bored, take one dribble, always be able to shake his man and miss a mid range jump shot. Like I get it but it's such a bad game to watch. I can't tell how you evaluate the player. David, thanks for the time as always, and we'll check in with you a week and in a week and see how many of these things have actually happened by then. Talk to you later. There's David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines coming up.